Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Heath Mayo. Heath is a management consultant and the founder of Principles First. Uh, all right. Welcome, one and all. Um, I'd like to begin with the... Um, abortion matter. Uh, it is looking now as if um, the Supreme Court may be poised to uh, overturn uh, Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, I say that not because of what happened with the Texas bill, but because there is a case on the docket, Dobbs, uh, uh, the Dobbs case from Mississippi, uh, that is a straight-up challenge to Roe and Casey and uh, the the court will be deciding it. But before we get to that, let us, before we get to the matter of whether the court is going to overturn Roe and what that might mean for the country, um, let's just start. Damon, last week when uh, we were coming to the end of the podcast, it had just come out what the Texas law had done, and uh, you were, you know, you were quite stern about the nature of that law, which I think is entirely appropriate. But why don't you just uh, amplify on that for a minute um, before we get to the rest? Because the Texas bill is really just terrible. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there there are two issues with the Texas bill. Uh, the, the Mississippi bill uh, that you mentioned a moment ago uh, is a direct challenge to Roe and Casey. It places the restriction on uh, legal abortion at 15 weeks, which is pre-viability. That's what um, is going to create the, the challenge that will uh, – leave the Supreme Court to decide whether uh, Roe and Casey stand. The Texas law, though, uh, creates a standard at only six weeks, which, of course, for many women will only be functionally two to three weeks, since many women don't even know uh, that they're pregnant until they've uh, missed their period. So, And sometimes this is miss an their period for more than one month, because some women right. are irregular. Exactly. So it, this is an extremely draconian attempt to restrict abortion, and it goes well beyond what we've seen in other states. So even if you incline toward wanting to restrict abortion more than has tended to be allowable under Roe and Casey, this might raise your eyebrows. It's, it's a pretty extreme uh, example of abortion restriction. But the thing that really, I think, moves the Texas law into a whole different category is the way it's enforced. Rather than the state directly enforcing it like it does any other normal law, what this law does is create an incentive for private lawsuits by citizens against abortion providers and anyone who could plausibly be accused as aiding and abetting the procedure. So the doctor, the nurses, the clinic that provide an abortion after six weeks, plus the Uber driver who brought the woman there, uh, the friend who gave the woman advice that she should get an abortion, anyone in any way connected with this act is open to a lawsuit of up to $10,000, as well as legal expenses being reimbursed if you bring one of these lawsuits. 
this has, I think, quite accurately been described as a law that encourages a form of bounty hunting, where the, the government is farming out its prosecutorial and uh, uh, enforcement mechanism to private citizens and essentially saying, hey, you can make some cash if you go and get people in trouble for violating this law. Now, I don't know. This is apparently... Um, a strategy that was hatched within uh, the conservative legal world, uh, partly in order to bring about exactly what we saw happen last week with the Supreme Court, where they sort of didn't know what to do. And I really am willing to give even the conservatives on the court the, the benefit of the doubt that they weren't, in effect, doing what a lot of progressives immediately accused them of, that basically they already overturned Roe and Casey last week. That no, this was a procedural ruling during the court shadow docket where people had brought suits against this new law and they were they were... Uh, uh, attempting to receive relief from the court, in other words, blocking its imposition until the uh, new law could actually be reviewed by coming up through the standard channels, through the appellate courts, all the way probably to the Supreme Court months and months from now, maybe even a year or two from now. The Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to intervene. And the reason why the, the conservative majority uh, uh, went with that is beca precisely because there was no enforcement mechanism by the state. And so it was unclear exactly who had standing, who the injured parties were, and all of that became hopelessly muddled. Now, of course, the three liberals on the court, as well as the chief justice, John Roberts, were still willing to uh, block the enforcement of this law simply on the grounds that this very mechanism of enforcement was so highly unusual that it required a, a, a kind of pause on it while it could be reviewed. But uh, the conservative majority decided actually, no, we'll, we'll, we'll let it stand for now, allow there to be injured parties, allow those injured parties to bring suit and have it kind of rise up over the coming months and maybe more uh, to the high court. So in general, I mean, my take on it is my own view of abortion is very muddled and in the middle, I'm in, I'm in favor of allowing states to regulate abortions pretty strictly after the first trimester. Um, uh, and certainly after viability, uh, and I'm willing to compromise with that within limits. But uh, as I said earlier, the Texas law both is very, very early, and secondly, it's the enforcement mechanism that I find truly outrageous and led me last week to call it uh, perhaps the most morally obscene law passed in my lifetime. So, uh, Heath, Mayo, th first of all, welcome. Thanks for being here. You're a lawyer, I believe. Um, and um, I, I found the um, – I was actually with the majority um, in, in a sense of the uh, court when they said, look, this does not present a case or controversy at the moment because the one person who was named said he had no intention of enforcing the law. And uh, there really wasn't um, there really wasn't standing to decide it. So the uh, the drafters, I guess, get credit for cleverness. But um, my question to you is, you know, at what price? I mean, the, by 
by figuring out this really super clever way of getting around a preliminary injunction, um, they they instituted a scheme that um, really does encourage um, people to spy on one another, to inform, to to be bounty hunters, to take advantage of women's uh, you know misery uh, in this fashion, and um, and I, I think it 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 puts the entire pro life movement for which, by the way, I consider myself part of, um, in a very bad light. Right. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and thanks again for having me, having me here. It's, it's, it's an honor to, to be with you all. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think Texas really, I'm not sure what they're accomplishing by this, to be honest, because, you know, the, the defendants that uh, the plaintiff joined in this case included, you know, I'm from East Texas, it included the right to life director of the Longview chapter of Right to Life, and so, yeah, and, and a couple of other folks who are adamantly um, pro-life and who have been engaged uh, in the movement for a long time, and so that th those are the types of people that had to essentially walk into court and say, "Oh no, no, I wasn't actually going to sue anyone under this statute." So it's actually, in in order to keep it out of court, they had to sort of say, or or to get the ruling that the court ultimately handed down, they had to say, "Oh, I." I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't sue under this. Mm. Um, and so it, it's, it's confusing to me what it even really accomplishes, because to me, what the pro-life movement wants, what it needs is what the Mississippi lawsuit is accomplishing, which is having the court reconsider its precedent in Roe and Casey. And what happened in Texas is that's not what happened. You know, it, it's not that this, it's not that the law is really in force. It's just hanging out there over the populace and it's creating this threat of, uh, liability if someone ultimately does bring a suit. But the whole point is that they're trying to keep these challenges out of court so that the law can't be challenged. So it's not clear to me that even from a pro-life perspective, the Texas law helps accomplish what pro-life conservatives have been wanting to be accomplished for a long time, which is presenting the question properly before the court so that Roe, so that Casey can be reconsidered. So it, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Right. Uh, Linda, a lot of the criticism over the years of uh, Roe v. Wade and its progeny, which includes Casey, is that, well, the, the main criticism is that it took a, a, a matter that is uh, clearly a political subject that should be decided by people in their states and by elected representatives of the people. Um, they took it out of the hands of the people and, and, and judicialized it so that it sort of shut down debate and discussion. And, um, and so the court seems poised now. I, um, let, let's assume that they are going to reconsider Roe and Casey. They're doing so just at a moment when we seem least capable of, you know, discussion, debate, reaching reasonable compromises with one another. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, I mean, I, I would like to see the, the issue, res, you know, uh, return to state legislatures, but, uh, boy, uh, it's, it's hard to be optimistic about how that debate will go in the current atmosphere. Well, and particularly when state legislatures include those like Texas that come yep. up with this bizarre scheme. I mean, you know, th this, uh, scheme they've devised in Texas does not only affect abortion, it takes normal American tort law and basically stands it on its head. I mean, the the basic premise. I'm not a lawyer, but I you know deal with these kinds of constitutional and other issues. And you know, the principle has always been in America: you can't sue somebody 
you don't have standing to sue somebody unless you've had an injury. So, you know, Mona, you are, uh, as, as long as I have known you, you have been a very staunch pro-life advocate and you might very much object uh, to an abortion taking place in Texas. But for you to be able to go and essentially try to enforce this law and get a $10,000 benefit from it, you've suffered no harm because someone has had an abortion. So it, it just, it, it's such a fallacious um, argument. And what it says to me is that um, the Republican Party and what now calls itself the conservative movement, but which is anything but conservative in my view, has become so radicalized uh, that they've basically gotten away from principles, sort of kind of principled conservatism. And certainly this is, is one uh, example of that. And by the way, I also think politically, this is a huge gift to the Democrats. You know, one of the reasons abortion, um, anti-abortion advocates have been more impassioned and have been more willing to make that issue a voting issue is because of their strong moral belief that abortion is murder and therefore they must vote their conscience. And so for that, and it is a minority of Americans who hold that view, um, it's a voting issue. But for uh, the majority of Americans who may find abortion wrong, they might find it distasteful, or they may uh, support it, it's never, you know, in recent years been that much of a voting issue because Roe v. Wade basically, uh, you know, mooted uh, whether or not a state could come in and do something drastically to, to shut down abortion. Well, Texas has changed that. And I think there are a lot of particularly young people who are going to look at this and say, oh, gee, this really, my right to, you know, illegal abortion is in fact threatened. And uh, they may have actually motivated, you know, there's been a, a kind of shift going on in Texas. They may motivate not just, uh, you know, Democratic, liberal young people, uh, but there are pro-choice Republicans out there as well. So I, I think they were just too clever by half uh, in what they did in Texas. And it's certainly not going to uh, redound to the benefit of the Republican Party. Bill Galston, Linda anticipated the question I was going to come to you with, which is the political implications of this, because uh, as Linda pointed out, um, the uh, this this has traditionally been an issue that motivated some parts of the Republican base, um, and uh, but not not everybody else. And and some people have been speculating that the the one thing that could be a boon to the fortunes of the Democratic Party at the moment is the overturning of Roe. Well, I agree with that. Uh, and here's why. Let me give you a market analogy. Uh, the market tends to be stable as long as events are not occurring uh, that upset settled expectations. When there's a surprise, when something happens that the market had not anticipated, then there are very sharp price changes. And pe so people are always comparing reality to their expectations of reality. Uh, and so it is in politics. And I am sure that most Democrats, certainly Democrats below the age of 50, 
are finding it very difficult to imagine a world in which some form of Roe is not the law of the land. They can't believe it's going to happen. And when it does, it will be an enormous shock. The shock will turn into anger. The anger will turn into action. Uh, and I think it would be one of the best opportunities the Democrats have had for decades for effective grassroots mobilization on a social issue. Uh, so if I were if I were really cynical, I would say bring it on. Uh, there are various there are various reasons why I don't think this is a fight we need right now. Uh, and you know, like you, Mona, I'm a little skeptical that the uh, that the political apparatus in this country is in any shape or any mood to have a rational and respectful conversation about what should be possible and and what not. My final point is this. I think it's important to be clear about what the real structure of public opinion on this issue is. And I'll stylize it for brevity. About 30% of the American electorate believes that abortion should be available on demand under all circumstances. About 10% of the American electorate believes that it should be illegal under all circumstances. And the remaining 60% say yes, but not in these circumstances, or no, but in these circumstances, yes. And it's that 60% zone within which, in a more rational political universe, we could argue out uh, and perhaps even compromise on uh, these issues. But we're not, we're not, the structure of the legal system does not permit us to reach that discussion, let alone conduct that discussion to reach a conclusion. Yeah, I, I would add another uh, quick point and, and offer this for anybody to discuss. Um, and that is that, um, you know, yes, the, the vast majority of Americans find themselves in the mushy middle on abortion. They're not, you know, they, they don't want it limited in, in the first three uh, months, but then they are in favor of, of limitations later on, and they're, they're against it in certain circumstances and not in others, and there's a lot of leeway with fetal abnormalities and, you know, health of the mother and various things. Okay. Um, but if we ever do reach the point where we are debating these very hard-to-manage middle-range topics, um, some of the surprises that that people will will find are that, um, for example, our abortion regime is just is more radical than pretty much any other advanced country. I mean, you know, Europe has all kinds of restrictions uh, that that some on the American left would consider draconian. Um, and there are lots of people out there in the Democratic Party um, who are um, who have many more reservations about abortion than the official party stances. And here's the point I'm coming to, which is both parties in the United States have found themselves arrayed at the extremes on this issue. And I'm wondering if um, the the um, the overturning of Roe and Casey might actually force the parties to better represent where the American people really are. Any comments, Damon? 
Well, I mean, the, the only thing I wanted to add actually was in response to Bill's point, just to say that at least from what I've seen, uh, and I rely mainly on Gallup, which has had a very good longstanding tracking poll on abortion and public opinion, the, the number of Americans who believe abortion should be illegal in all circumstances stands at about 19%, not 10. Um, and it's been uh, around 18, 19 for over a decade now. Um, so I, I think it's still uh, the case that uh, the number of Americans who believe it should be legal in all cases is higher. It's about 32% now. The interesting thing is that as recently as 2009, that number was only 21. So as recently as that long ago, a little over a decade ago, roughly the same number of people were absolutists on either side. But that gap has opened up uh, over the last decade so that there are now more uh, who are absolute pro-choice. Uh, that leaves about 48% of the country in that mushy, undetermined middle. Um, and I guess I, I get if it's okay if I could add one more quick point yeah, on this. Please. That remember that we are debating whether Roe and Casey will be overturned, and therefore whether this will be returned to the states, and that the states themselves are very, very different. There are lots of states, including the states with some of the largest populations in the country, especially New York, California, and Illinois, where uh, where abortion will remain pretty much as it is now, even if Roe and Casey disappeared. And so in those states, I don't know how much of a difference any of this will make. Where it will make a difference is in more red states, where actually it will be outlawed. But the fact is that public opinion in those states are quite a bit more pro-life. That's why they're red. So for instance, the latest Texas a public, public opinion poll I've seen, uh, taken I believe last March, uh, had 13% of Texans saying abortion should never be permitted in any case at all, and 31 additional percent thinking it should only be permitted in rape, incest, or life of the mother. So you put those two things together, and we're at like 45%, basically, with a stringent pro-life position there. Now, that's still a minority, uh, but still it shows that, you know, when it comes to trying to game out what the political consequences of all this might be. It's it's a little more complicated, I think, than we might assume, and it really could very well end up doing little other than continuing us down the path we're already on, where Republicans become more right wing and Democrats become more left wing on this on this issue, along with so many others. Yeah, there are so many unknowns. For example, how many of the people in Texas who have the other point of view, though, on this would become energized by the thought of the law actually changing in Texas and, you know, might then begin to vote more? It's it's all these are all unknowns. But, you know, could I could I just, uh, you know, add, Mona, that uh, one of the things I think that um, is going to be interesting to see if, in fact, and I think you know, there is a good possibility that in the Mississippi case, uh, the law uh, that is passed there will pass constitutional muster, which would, uh, in effect, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. The real question is going to be, is there going to be any room in the Democratic Party for people like former Governor Casey or like the old Joe Biden? Um, you know, because I think that, you know, we, we focus a lot on the extremes in the Republican side, 
But there, um, there are pro-life Democrats who at least say that they are pro-life individually in their own lives, and um, and they have not had a very welcome uh, spot in the Democratic Party. And the only other thing I would add is that what we're seeing in Texas, I think if we if we go back to having states have having different laws and different standards. Um, what we're going to see is there will be um, movement. Some people will decide not to live in those states. And I think the, the pro, uh, pro-choice movement is going to get very active in transporting women who want abortions to other states. And we're already seeing that happen right now in Texas under this new law. Uh, last word on this subject, Heath Mayo. Yeah, I, I maybe we'll take it in a little different track. I, I you know, I actually hope that the Supreme Court, for their part, um, in in this whole unfolding uh, drama over abortion, doesn't look at the opinion polls. And maybe I'm, you know, maybe that is a uh, you know ivory tower view of what uh, the court does today. But I think it's what it should do, right? I think it should look at the law, look at the rights that are at issue, and decide. I mean, there are challenging questions here, and they need to be answered. I mean, I think the first line in Casey, the majority opinion in Casey, you know, uh, liberty finds no refuge in a jurisprudence of doubt. I think that's true for liberty. I think that's true for life. I think it's true for all of the rights. And what I what I hope the court doesn't do is sort of throw their finger up in the air and 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 think, you know, what what does public opinion really allow for us to decide here? You know, for instance, you know, I think when when the court decided brown v board of education if there were only 10 percent of the if there was only 10 percent of the country then that had agreed with brown v board uh and and you know riots were going to ensue uh if if brown v board was decided which i think you know riots did ensue when brown, brown v board was decided and overturned the the separate but equal logic of plessy you know i think we still would say it's good for the supreme court to make that that decision and to change the precedent when it's flawed. Uh, and so I, I think it's it, it would be helpful for the Supreme Court to clarify the logic of Roe and Casey so that so that states know where the line is. And because I think that I think the question now is, is it 15 weeks? Can we do this? And, and they've just sort of been not taking up these questions. And to, to, to Bill's point and Damon's point, you know, the the public opinion is very mixed. And and I don't necessarily think this, the court should should cons- concern itself with that when it hands down an opinion. Now I think certainly, Bill Bill's right. This is probably not going to be good for Republicans if you know the Supreme Court hands down something that the you know the four justices say you know there's a firm interest. The state's interest in life here is very firm, and we it's going to you know the the right of the the mother is going to see to the, the, the life interest here. And we're going to allow even laws like Texas's law to go into effect. But I think that is the wisdom of the state-based approach that Linda raised, letting states sort of test the boundaries with their own people and, and, and take these laws in different directions that the current um, Roe Casey regime doesn't allow. So that, that's what, that's, that's all I would add. Okay. Bill, did you have a quick last point? Because we're uh, way over on this topic. Okay. Well, just very quickly, uh, Damon and I have a data difference. If you look at the if you look at the series for the NBC poll going back 15 years ago, you'll see that illegal without exceptions averages about 10. It's most recent in the most recent poll a couple of weeks ago, it was eight. 
So a lot depends on how you ask the question. Oh, it really does. In fact, polling on abortion is notoriously terrible, uh, partly because people frequently ask whether you approve of Roe, and most voters don't know what's in Roe. So anyway, all right, let's um, move on to uh, the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11, which is uh, this weekend. I, you know, I, I really do not understand, Linda, uh, why Joe Biden wanted to time our departure from Afghanistan um, to the 9-11 anniversary. I thought that was really not smart. Um, because No, it's not smart. But do you know what Donald uh, Trump is doing uh, on Saturday evening? Apparently I, I, I do. World, yeah, so he's doing like world wrestling or some, some, some sort a of boxing uh, match. A he's, boxing match. Yes. He's going to a boxing match with Donald Jr. What a way to celebrate. Not just going to one, but he's going to be a no, paid right. commentator. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I think it was uh, a real misstep uh, on, on Biden's part. Um, look, this was a national trauma. It's the only time in, in our history, except for one, you know, minor invasion uh, by Pancho Villa uh, during uh, the Mexican Revolutionary War, where they invaded a part of Texas, and of course, the attack on Pearl Harbor uh, by the Japanese. But we were attacked in our homeland. Thousands of people died. And it was uh, a scar that those of us who were alive and around uh, at the time, in particularly those people who were in uh, New York City or in Washington, D.C. Uh, Mona, you and I lost a friend uh, in uh, Barbara Olson in, uh, in the uh, uh, crash at the Pentagon. And so, you know, I do think um, that it was it was really a mistake on his part. On the other hand, I think a lot of Americans are feeling very much like the way in which we reacted, uh, getting involved uh, in their view too long in Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq were mistakes. Uh, and that they divided the country. And certainly the war on terror, you know, there were the debates about the use of torture, um, waterboarding, and, and other forms of, of what uh, most human rights organizations would deem as, as torture, being used to try to elicit information from people's we, uh, people we captured on the battlefield or elsewhere. Um, this has been a, a really very... Um, traumatic experience for America and for our conception of ourselves. So I don't know what lessons we've learned from 9-11. I don't even know how properly to commemorate it uh, because we seem to have lost our way uh, in in such a dramatic fashion. And of course, you know, two of our our regulars, Damon and Bill Galston, both have wonderful pieces uh, on this subject. Yes, and we're going to come to them. Uh, but first, I would like to pose this question to you, Heath Mayo. Um, I, I saw a commentator say that um, we set out after 9-11 to make the world more, you know, to make the Middle East more like us. And in the end, we wound up making us more like them. How do you respond to that critique? 
I mean, I think it's, you know, it's certainly an interesting comparison, but I don't know that I would go um, comparing the United States um, to say that, say the Taliban is, as, you know, I think people on the left have been maybe making that, making that comparison, saying the American Taliban, I think that's a category error. Um, and I, and I, and I don't think that that's particularly helpful. Um, but, but I do think that, we need to, I mean, I, I think it was maybe Damon's piece that I was reading on 9-11. We need to really grapple with the influence of um, a rejection of uh, institutions, particularly 20th century institutions that has really defined much of the early 20th, first century. You know, I think history has, has kind of traveled from 9-11 in such a way that has found the, those, that populist resentment, um, you know, taking seed in the United States. Now, is it, is it suicide bombings uh, that are motivated by uh, radical Islamic terror? No, it's not that. Uh, and, and it's different than that. But it is people who feel isolated uh, from their communities, uh, from their families sometimes. Um, and we, we have that dynamic taking place in the United States with our own people. And so I think that honestly is probably what is motivating a lot of this, this, this angst and weariness with the external war effort, uh, this desire among a lot of Americans to bring our troops back home and sort of focus on, you know, America first, let's focus on America. And you know, it's hard to it's hard it's hard to blame people honestly uh, that that feel that way when you look at our society and the effects on our society that drive the, that that sort of you know with social media and all of this stuff that bring us further apart as individuals and and make us more isolated even though we're now more connected than we ever were. Um, and so, you know, I, I wouldn't compare us directly to the Taliban, obviously, but I, but I think that there are, um, you know, travel through themes that, um, that we should recognize and combat as much as we can um, so that we don't have this type of populist, aggressive extremism taking root and festering uh, within our own borders. So... Thanks. Damon, I, I want to uh, focus on the piece, a uh, very good piece that you wrote, um, but, but I'd like first for you to just uh, respond to this, because I've seen a lot of commentary around the anniversary that stresses the mistakes that we have made um, since 9-11 as a society. Um, I think there was a piece in The Atlantic that basically argued we did everything wrong, and um, I honestly think that goes too far, and I also resist this this um, notion um, that that it was that it was entirely hubris. Uh, look, there were good reasons to be fearful of this global Islamist violent um, strain that was that was showing up. It didn't just show up on September 11th. And, you know, the World Trade Center was originally bombed in 1993. You know, I think a couple dozen people were were killed then. Uh, it didn't work out as the planners had hoped, but it was a serious attempt. You know, the, and then there were the, all the rest, the, the bombing of the coal. The, the, the our embassies were attacked in Kenya and Tanzania, and there were attacks all over the world. And this kind of thing was was happening to the point where when 9-11 happened, which as Linda described, it was such a profound attack and such a shock, 
uh, you know, it was understandable, wasn't it, that people said, okay, this is this is now a war, okay? This is no longer just, you know, we have to do some policing operations around the world. Yeah, I, and I, I agree with almost everything you just said. Um, I First of all, uh, you know, I, I probably wouldn't even have bothered to mention it uh, six months ago, but because there seems to be some revisionism going on in the wake of our withdrawal from Afghanistan, but I'll put my cards on the table. Yes, I supported the uh, the attack on Afghanistan after 9-11. There was, I, you know, I know Barbara Lee voted against it, uh, but frankly, aside from her, I, mean, I, I don't think there's any country in the world that would not have gone to war in Afghanistan after the Taliban government there sheltered uh, and gave aid and comfort to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, who then attacked us. Uh, so, of course, we had to do that. Similarly, I think many of the policies pursued and set up by the Bush administration after 9-11 were, on balance, uh, pretty pretty good. I mean, I, I, I talk a little bit in the piece that you mentioned, the piece I wrote commemorating the 20th anniversary this week. I talked toward the beginning about how I was there that day in New York uh, and how terrified I was for the first few months afterwards commuting through Grand Central Terminal every day, expecting there to be uh, a suicide bombing on the Grand Concourse there, taking out a few hundred people, hopefully not me. How uh, so many people coming through New York in those months feared the anonymous uh, white van that we kept reading about that might have a small nuke or a dirty bomb on it and what that would mean for myself personally, but for our country and for civilization, if something like that could be achieved, blowing up a small nuke in midtown Manhattan, taking out, uh, you know, maybe a few hundred thousand people, untold amounts of wealth, you'd have depopulation of urban centers around the world, massive economic downturns. I mean, it's if you spin out the nightmare scenarios that, frankly, were not that unrealistic in that moment, uh, it could have been atrocious. And the fact is there was no follow-up major attack. And the Bush administration deserves credit for that, that, uh, you know, we don't know what would have happened if we had done something else. But where I think Bush and his team went wrong is in sort of flinching at the truths contained in his very good January 20th, 2001 speech to the nation, where he said, I don't have it in front of me, but he said something to the effect of, in this new war, uh, our victories may not be heralded and our defeats will be hidden as well. He was talking about how this was a new kind of war where we would be doing things covertly using intelligence and special ops and there wouldn't be the usual kind of victories and territory taken and uh, and uh, you know surrenders from the other side that this was going to be a sort of low grade hidden war without end. That was, I think, exactly right. Where I think Bush went wrong is in deciding that actually it sure would be great if we could actually wage a, a good old-fashioned war and take out Iraq. Um, and when we did that, we lost our concentration on Afghanistan. 
Of course, we didn't get bin Laden, and so we stayed for that reason there as well. And then a, a kind of general losing of focus as the decade went on that's continued to this day. So, I mean, I'm with you in, in not wanting to go along with people who say we've gotten everything wrong. No, it's as always in human history. You get some things right and others not so much. And uh, Bush and Obama and Trump and now Biden have uh, have all made some mistakes, but uh, I, I think we should be grateful 20 years after that horrific day that there was no follow-on attack of anywhere near that magnitude. Thank goodness. Uh, thank God. Uh, amen to that. Uh, Bill Galston, my brother, the doctor, says uh, that um, everything is always crystal clear when you examine it through the retrospectoscope. Um and uh, and so you know when you're when you're living life and and responding in the moment, uh, uh, there are there are mistakes. So you laid out some of those uh, in your piece. Why don't you um, elaborate on that? Well, uh, I'm not so much interested in the individual mistakes, although I could enumerate them, and if you insist, I will. Uh, but rather the net, uh, and I agree that. You know, comparing the United States to another country or to the Taliban is you know methodologically suspect. So why don't we care, compare the United States to itself? September tenth of two thousand and one, September tenth of two thousand and twenty one. Are we a stronger nation today or a weaker nation than we were twenty years ago? And I think the answer to that question is obvious. And our response to 9-11 had something to do with the fact that we have declined at least relatively and quite conceivably absolutely as well during this period. Uh, and one of the mistakes that I enumerated in my piece that I will defend is that we overreacted to 9-11 and as a result, lost focus on the rising geopolitical threats that the United States faced from a resurgent Russia and a rising China. And for the better part of two decades, we allowed them to roam freely through the world, taking advantage of our inattention or our inability to mobilize enough resources away from the Middle East, or even in some cases in the Middle East, to do what needed to be done. I am, you know, I am very fearful that the 20-year head start that we've given the Chinese is going to be hard to recover from, and that the relative power of China, even if we do begin to respond, is going to be at its peak sometime in this decade. What will they do with this advantage? And are, are we prepared to meet it? And our overreaction to 9-11 has put us in a position where we're really trying to catch up from behind, uh, and we could lose the war for the 21st century as the result of our overreaction in Afghanistan. That is the gravamen of my argument. Everything else is a detail. Although I will say this, 
I'm not entirely joking. Uh, Tucker Carlson has become the undistilled id of the populist movement. And he emitted a full-throated praise of the Taliban just a few days ago. And he made two points. Number one, these are men who are unafraid of their masculinity. <laughs> and number two, they're women like it. <laughs> My God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God. Yeah. All right. Look, I, I, I will I, I will close with this observation um, that I um, was a, uh, you know, I was the mother of young children on 9-11. Uh, I had to rush to their school to pick them up um, and um, and on the way to pick up uh, my two younger sons um, got a phone call uh, from someone telling me that I should pull over because she had distressing news, not just distressing, but that somebody that we knew, um, uh, Barbara Olson, was on one of those planes that crashed. Um, and I remember distinctly during the weeks that followed the terrible fear um, of another attack, um, the fear that there were anthrax, we had to segregate the mail, um, the, the fear of the Washington, D.C. sniper, which came right after. I mean, there were all kinds of worries, whether the reservoirs were being attacked, all, you name it, whether they were going to unleash um, uh, smallpox. Uh, a, a dirty bomb, you know, the, 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 our imaginations ran wild. Um, and, and yet I can honestly tell you that as frightening as that was uh, during that period, um, it isn't as deeply unsettling as the feeling I have now that our domestic peace and unity is shattered and that I don't know what to expect from my fellow Americans, not from some foreign enemy. And uh, that's even more unsettling. All right, let us now turn to uh, the GOP. We have a little bit of time left for this. Uh, the, the, um, there is going to be a recall election on Tuesday in California. And uh, Heath Mayo, I'm going to start with you on this. Um, the uh, Republicans, uh, including the front runner, uh, if you can call him that, on the Republican side, um, Larry Elder, uh, is saying that, uh, guess what? Guess what he's saying? He's saying that the uh, election might be rigged. Well, no, no surprise there. I mean, <laughs> if you look out across the Republican Party right now, uh, you know, the, the, the question du jour for, you know, in these primaries particularly are not any kind of topics of substantive policy for the country. You know, they're not talking about how to uh, create jobs for your family or, um, you know, encourage the growth of small businesses, right? The, the questions that are determining, um, you know, who rises and who falls in the Republican Party right now are, are our elections rigged? Can you trust it when you go and vote? You know, did Trump win the election in 2020? You know, what's your thoughts on that? That's the first thing. The second thing is, do these vaccines work? Are they tracking me? Uh, and, and, you know, what are we going to do to end this deep state vaccine conspiracy? Um, and, and the third is, you know, how, how loudly have you cheered um, for Trump in the past, right? And that's really the debate in Republican circles. So it's not surprising to see folks like Larry Elder um, coming out and paying lip service to some of these tropes. Um, it's, it's, I'll say it's, 
It, it is frustrating, obviously. And, and I think, you know, it's probably going to, you know, I don't know that Larry Elder is a very serious candidate for the governor of California. I don't know that Newsom is very good either, which is why I think he's, he's, he's find himself in some trouble there in, in deep blue California. But I mean, I think it's a disservice to conservatives and people who actually care about um, the policies that the Republican Party at least used to talk about. And now they don't even talk about them anymore. Um, so, you know, not, not frankly, not surprising. Uh, it's, it's hard to expect anything better at this point. Um, but, you know, uh, hopefully the pages are starting to turn, but I, I, I'm for reasons that are, that are obvious. I don't, I don't think there's much cause to be optimistic, but we will, we will continue to talk about it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we will. Um, especially here. So Bill Galston, um, you know, <laughs> You've got you've got Republicans showing up at school board meetings saying that they don't want to have uh, anybody tell them to take a vaccine because it makes scissors stick to their foreheads. Um, and uh, and you've got Trump uh, issuing statements in defense of Robert E. Lee. Um, and uh, and then you've got people on to the left, some people even in my timeline on uh, Twitter saying, well, this is exactly what the Republican Party has always been. There's no change. So I want you to respond to that, Bill Galston. What do you say to that? That this is just the same old Republican Party we've always known? Uh, not for the first time. I'm going to take a middle position. Okay. Uh, and that is, on the one hand, uh, this is not the Republican Party we have already, we've always known. The balance of power within the party has shifted dramatically in favor of a kind of, of populism uh, that apparently knows no bounds and you know, and wants to wants to pay back the left for what they see of, as decades of abuse and neglect of their dignity. On the other hand, I think I think Republicans that I respect have always averted their eyes uh, from some of the more extreme tendencies, theological and racial, within the Republican Party from Ronald Reagan's days on. Uh, and the idea was that these people could be used for electoral purposes, but they would never be on top. Well, guess what? You know, they're out of their bottle. Somebody took the cork out, uh, and now they run the party. And so on the one hand, they haven't always run the party. On the other hand, uh, for 40 years, they've been in the party. Uh, and uh, and uh, I don't think the people who ran the party for most of that time did very much, uh, very much to chastise and restrain uh, their, worst, their worst instincts. So, Linda, I'm going to come to you on this. I, I've heard this uh, from others, this critique that uh, that those of us who were the sane people in the Republican Party sort of averted our eyes from the nutcases and the dangerous ones and said, well, they have their uses and they're not in charge, so we don't have to take them on. Um, 
I, I don't believe that. Um, I actually think there was a lot of pushback against that part of the Republican Party. I mean, I remember the days when Bill Bennett went after Pat Buchanan. Uh, and I remember when uh, it was there were serious arguments uh, between the paleocons and the uh, and the traditional cons and so on. There was a lot of policing that went on. Um, and I would also state that uh, the Democratic Party overlooked a lot of radicalism in its ranks, too, because it was useful. Um, you know, you had Michael Moore as a as a uh, as an honored guest at one of the uh, Democratic conventions. So uh, how do you feel about this? Well, I, I agree with you, Mona. I mean, you know, David Duke, is, if I'm not uh, mistaken, did in fact, you know, become a, the Republican candidate uh, for U.S. Senate, and he was disavowed and got no support whatsoever uh, from the party. Um, so there were people who were radical and who tried to uh, wrap themselves in the Republican Party. Uh, I think there was a fair amount of uh, pushback. But, you know, you mentioned Bill Bennett. Uh, I know. true. But Bill <laughs> Bennett, you know, he's done a 180. I know. Uh, he's a, he's as Trumpy as you get these days. Yeah. So, um, so I, you know, I don't know how to explain it. Look, um, I knew when I was at the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, when I was very much at the forefront of uh, the debate on uh, racial preferences, affirmative action, et cetera, that some of the people who supported my point of view uh, did it for all the wrong reasons. I wasn't naive about that. I knew that. Um, I tried always to make it clear um, that my greatest objection, for example, to having different standards for admission for um, uh, minority students in, in college admissions uh, was deeply racist and that it actually ended up hurting the people that it was supposed to benefit. And that was the argument I made. And I did not play uh, to the arguments of, uh, you know, that uh, all these uh, white males were in fact, you know, losing out to less qualified uh, minorities because I didn't think that uh, number one statistically uh, ended up uh, having much uh, salience, uh, but I also, you know, just found it not the right argument to make. So, yeah, that um, did we have people who, you know, were part of the party and uh, who were not really motivated by the kinds of things you and I were motivated by? Sure. Uh, but I think you're right about the Democrats. But what has happened to the Republican Party is quite different. And, um, you know, the populism that started with the Tea Party movement uh, and basically overcame the party, uh, many of the people who voted for Donald Trump, they weren't Republicans. They're people, many of them, who had never voted before. Uh, and they do not share uh, the kind of conservative uh, ideology that uh, many of, of uh, neocons like myself and, and more traditional conservatives uh, like yourself um, you know, that they, they don't come out of that background. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen going forward, uh, but I, I, I'm not willing to accept, um, you know, blame for um, having stayed silent because I don't think all of us did stay silent. Um, Damon, returning to a theme that is a regular theme of this podcast, but for good reason, I think, um, this... Um, this undermining of confidence in elections is the most destructive and insidious thing that the Trumpists, populists um, are doing. 
It is exactly what led to the insurrection on January 6th. It is exactly the kind of, um, of poison that can undermine people's faith in democracy and therefore lead to violence. Agree or disagree? Yeah, uh, yeah of course, yes. I, I mean, I don't know what to say about it at this point besides to agree and say that this is just terrible. Um, we're talking about the most fundamental rules that enable us to govern ourselves as a political community and that enable us to uh, continue to rule and be ruled in turn, to quote Aristotle, uh, and, and to view it with the whole system with legitimacy. If we get to the point where any time your side loses, you accuse the system of being corrupt and colluding against you, we're really just going to be mere millimeters away from civil unrest, civil violence, and ultimately a civil war. Because frankly, if you can't alternate power among competing, disagreeing factions within your polity, uh, the only other alternative is to fight it out. Um, I mean, you know, the old line about how politics is, is war by other means. Well, if politics breaks down, which it will, if we can't abide by a common set of rules and trust in them, then we, we, we will eventually have recourse to picking up weapons. So it's, uh, again, like, what does one say at a certain point beyond, beyond like, my God, man, can't, can't you realize that you're, like, driving at 80 miles an hour into a brick wall? Please stop. But, yeah. uh, you know, the, the Republican Party has uh, determined, as I think, you know, as they have at previous iterations of this kind of ratcheting toward radicalization uh, in the past, uh, they, there's this sense of like, well, yeah, behind closed doors, we don't really believe this, but, you know, this is what the voters need to hear in order to show up. So it's a kind of um, amplification of their enthusiasm to kind of feed the beast. But, uh, you know, the old metaphor of riding the tiger, you know, if the Republicans haven't learned by this point that you're going to get eaten, if you try to do that, I don't know what's going to convince them. But I'm afraid we're all going to learn before too, before too long. Yeah. And the people who know better and say in private, of course, this is all nonsense, and then in public say these horrible incendiary things are even worse, I think, in the grand scheme of things than the true believers uh, be exactly because they they do know better, and uh, you know maybe well, I, yes. I I agree at least at the level of kind of moral evaluation. Um, yeah. I do worry though about the people who really believe it. And no, then, no, of and, course, and power. Like yeah. if you combine the people who really can be uh, believe it with like giving them actual governmental power, then things get really scary. Sort of in the other direction of like, wow, we just have a lunatic in the White House. As we sort of did for four years, but, uh, you know, things can always get worse. <laughs> and by the way, we may again. So we'll yeah, get to indeed. that in later podcasts. All right. Let us turn now to our highlight or low light of the week. Linda, let's start with you. Okay. I'm going to, um, as I have before, point to an article uh, written by Tom Edsel, who's been a guest uh, on this program. He wrote a piece this week on the uh, September 8th called One Thing We Can Agree On Is That We're Becoming a Different Country. 
uh, the title doesn't really give you much of a description of what the article's about. It's really all about the shift that's taken place uh, in the area of tolerance. And he quotes uh, some great minds in this article, including our very own uh, Bill Galston, uh, in talking about the shift that's taken place on tolerations of speech uh, and toleration of certain ideas. And one of the things uh, that he talks about, he quotes Cass Sunstein talking about opprobrium entrepreneurs. I thought that was a wonderful phrase. And it's essentially uh, the left now um, has uh, become, as, as he describes it, um, less tolerant uh, in some ways than the right. Uh, there's been this big shift uh, with uh, liberal elites having moved out of the university uh, into the broader culture and basically uh, infusing ideas um, that if you don't uh, you know, stand in lockstep with them on issues of race or gender identity, uh, for example, uh, that uh, you're then basically written out of polite society. And I thought it was a very interesting article. He's got lots and lots of uh, examples of, of writers on uh, the left and, and center left, uh, like uh, Bill Galston, uh, describing this phenomena as it has taken place and the change that it is making uh, in our society. Yeah, uh, it seems we're living in a world where the left are cultural authoritarians and the right are political authoritarians. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, all right, Damon Linker. Well, um, you know, Bill uh, earlier mentioned Tucker Carlson um, as uh, for you know singling him out for praising the Taliban. Uh, he, of course, is uh, the most popular primetime uh, uh, talk show host on Fox News with an audience between three and four million people a night. Uh, I want to single him out myself as well for perniciousness and pernicious influence. Uh, listeners may remember a month or so ago, uh, I believe we talked briefly on the podcast about how I had written a long uh, column about how Michael Anton, who used to work for Trump, uh, he's a fellow at the uh, Claremont Institute, he had on a guy named Curtis Yarvin on a two-hour podcast. Curtis Yarvin is, by any definition, a far-right figure uh, who used to blog by the name Menentius Moldbug or Moldbug. <laughs> easy for uh, you sorry. to say. Yeah, not so easy. Um, he's, a, he's a guy who's he describes himself as a monarchist, but that doesn't quite capture it. Uh, he, he made the case on this uh, um, podcast with uh, Anton that uh, the next uh, right-winger to win an election, and he, he even lapsed into calling this person Trump in the middle of the podcast, uh, that this person should uh, reenact uh, January 6th on a much larger scale using phone apps to organize hundreds of thousands of supporters around the country and to basically declare a kind of martial law and take over it and appoint himself an American Caesar. Um, it turns out uh, just 
just this week, Tucker Carlson, on a show that he hosts during the day online titled Tucker Carlson Today, had Curtis Yarvin on for an hour and 15-minute discussion. Uh, the video of this is available to people who uh, subscribe to the kind of Fox News uh, special thing that you, if you pay extra money, you become a member and you can watch special videos there. Uh, it's promoted by Fox as, quote, conservative blogger Curtis Yarvin joins Car Tucker Carlson today. And their conversation is, as you'd expect, it's, it's all Yarvin's uh, far-right musings about how the deep state is totally real, the government is controlled not by the president, but by this faceless administrative state that imposes progressivism at every single turn, and the only hope for the right is to seize power and smash it. Uh, and uh, that's who Tucker Carlson wants to have a nice chat with and introduce his very large audience to. I will predict it will not be long before this individual is invited on to the primetime show itself to educate uh, his his listeners, his viewers, into the future of what conservatism in America is supposed to mean. All right. And then next to the Republican National Convention. Exactly. All right. Heath Mayo. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, my highlight, I think, has to be um, Governor, West Virginia Governor Jim Justice. I don't know if anyone, any of you have seen his, uh, I guess it's state of the state sort of weekly public service announcements on, on COVID. But if you haven't seen them, I, I can't recommend them highly enough. I mean, here's a Republican governor, very plainly spoken. Um, he reminds me of my, my stepdad in that respect. Just, just kind of waxing poetic about um, the hypocrisy and just the absurdity of uh, some of what we're hearing from folks on the right about the vaccines. Uh, you know, I think he said said something like, "For God's sakes, a living." You know, people are out there thinking that there's something tracking us in these vaccines, and they're they're the ones out there c carrying around their cell phones. You know, I mean, he's just—it's very entertaining. Um, and but it's what you know, it's what Republican governors ought to be doing, right? Um, they, 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 we really need them to be be the voice uh, for the vaccine. Um, I think it's been good that s more of them have come out and and made these types of announcements, um, but still many haven't. And of course, you're not going to hear um, Jim Justice getting an interview on Fox News to to kind of spread this message. Instead, as Damon mentioned, it's going to be um, you know some of these right wing kooks instead. But um, yeah, that's my highlight. Kudos to um, Governor Justice, and I hope he hope he continues to do it. Well, thank you for that. Maybe it should be a weekly feature on this podcast. You know, sightings of Republican sanity. Uh, wherever yeah, we exactly. can find them. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Bill Galston. And now for something completely different. Uh, while nobody in the United States is paying attention, the most powerful nation in Europe, namely Germany, is going to have an election in two weeks. Uh, and it is entirely probable that the left is going to win that election. And by the left, I mean not just the Social Democrats, but the far left as part of a left-wing coalition. Uh, seven months ago, 
uh, the Christian Democrats, the sort of the center-right, uh, you know, Christian-oriented party, had 36 percent of the vote, and the socialists had 15 percent. As of this morning, the Christian Democrats had declined from 36 to 21 percent, the lowest ever, and the socialists have gained 10 points and now lead all other parties. Uh, this would be a political earthquake in the heart of Europe. Uh, and absolutely no one in this country is paying any attention to it, which says a lot about the current state of American punditry. Well, I am well, paying attention to it, I have to say. <laughs> I, wrote, well, I wrote a little, a, a short column about it about a week ago, but uh, it's true that I am just one. Well, and I certainly will from now on. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, well, you know, just you know, take, take a look at what's happening. I mean, you're talking about a fundamental political realignment in Europe. That would be it. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, that's that's uh, really interesting and news to me. I, I will definitely be looking into this. Um, all right. Um, for mine, I want to, uh, speaking of something completely different, I want to draw attention to some good news that happened in the world. Um, this was uh, last month, but... Uh, there was an experiment performed at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, um, which was part of the um, efforts to understand nuclear fusion. Uh, this has been the holy grail of, uh, of energy uh, research now for many decades. Um, and the hope is that somehow we will be able to harness nuclear fusion rather than nuclear fission, which is currently the way our nuclear reactors are powered. Nuclear fission creates nuclear waste, but nuclear fusion creates no waste if we were able to do it well. For, you know, something like a thousandth of a second, uh, this experiment with lasers produced a fusion reaction that generated what they say, one, more than 10 quadrillion watts of fusion power for 100, there it is, 100 trillionths of a second in, in a hot spot the, the size of human hair. Okay, it doesn't seem like much, but it could be. Um, the original Wright Brothers flight lasted only 12 seconds, uh, but we know where that led. If this pans out and actually is the turning point that uh, some believe it could be, it's, uh, Arthur Terrell of the Imperial College in London said, this phenomenal breakthrough brings us tantalizingly close to a demonstration of net energy gain from fusion reactions just when the planet needs it. And I cite it because um, there is so much... Um, there is so much gloom about climate change in this world. And I just cite this as a reminder that there is never an end to human ingenuity. 
and that uh, we have a lot of problems with uh, tribalism and our political order and many other things. But uh, when it comes to technological uh, developments and technological breakthroughs, human beings are pretty damn impressive. So stay tuned to what happens uh, with nuclear fusion. Uh, we have any, a demurral. Any signs of political fusion on the horizon? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that too would be hopeful, but I'm not going to predict that. All right. Well, thank you, Heath Mayo, for <laughs> joining us this week. Thank you, thank one you. and all. And uh, we will return next week as every week. Thank you.